Does evolution disprove God? Did the church persecute Galileo and other scientists? How can a scientist who devotes his life to evidence and reason have faith in an unseen God? You've likely heard these questions before, or something quite close to them. Science and Christianity. It's in the news, it's in the pulpits, and even in the classroom. It's a topic that never seems to die. And as it looks, it won't be going anywhere anytime soon. Major universities around the world have seen a growth in interest. Oxford and Cambridge have entire fields devoted to the topic of science and religion. Yet for many of us, if we're honest, the area is a place of angst, where we might worry that some new discovery or ambitious scientists will come forth proclaiming another relic of the faith has fallen before the unstoppable momentum of scientific progress. But is that true? Do we really have anything to fear? Or has this whole warfare narrative been overplayed? On today's episode, we ask, are science and faith really at war? science deathmatch, Christians who love Darwin, and John pestering me, as per usual. And guess what? We don't have a special guest this week. We have a very unspecial, dull, tedious guest named... Seth Hart. That's right, the host has become the guest. This week we are interrogating Seth about his area of specialization, religion and science. Seth, how does it feel to be under the microscope for once? It feels good, John. Just glad to be here. Yeah, it's warm under the microscope in the sun. It's nice. Well, Seth has three master's degrees, one of which was from Regent College and one of which was from Oxford under Alistair McGrath, arguably the leading scholar of religion and science in the world and the top theologian in the UK. And then Seth went on to do his doctorate in theology and science and is at Durham, where he got the Durham doctoral studentship under Simon Oliver and works on evolution and teleology. So this actually is kind of Seth's area. Religion and science, are they at war? How do they fit together? As surprising as it is, he actually knows a thing or two about this one very specific, very narrow subset of information. And so today we are going to probe the depths of his knowledge, however shallow they ultimately may be. You know, I say I'm happy to be here, and I really actually am. That's not even sarcasm. I didn't have internet. We just moved. And I did not have internet in this place until, oh, a good whopping 45 minutes ago. So the fact that I could even be here, yeah, I'm pretty happy that this episode is even going off the ground. What a beautiful synthesis of technology 
and science coming together to provide you with the invisible Wi-Fi for which we can explore spiritual questions, Seth. Has God not provided? Yeah, it's invisible, and yet it's all around us. It's Wi-Fi, and it provides it's us fine. with every good, good and perfect thing. It's Wi-Fi. See, there's science. <laughs> there's a science oh. and theology parallel right there. The Wi-Fi signals for which we live and move and have our being in this progressive contemporary world. There is a parallel there. There is. And we're, we're all uploading and downloading information and connection. And we have relationships through the Wi-Fi as if it were the body of Christ. Not only that we vertically access God, but we horizontally access each other through social media through the Wi-Fi. It is, it's beautiful, Seth. It's beautiful. Are you going to ask me any questions or are we just going to wax eloquent about how Wi-Fi is a, an image of Jesus? So let's, let's get to today's subject. Science and religion at war. Are they or are they not? Well, Seth, here's my first question. On a popular level, we all tend to have this sort of background assumption that science and religion are at war. Why is that? Where does that assumption come from? That is the major question that most people deal with is our science and religion at war. Even to talk about the category of science and religion, when I tell people I study this topic, they're like, oh, like how they fit together, how you can reconcile them. It's the automatic assumption is that these two categories are at war. It'd be really interesting if I said, you know, I'm studying like poetry and romanticism and people are like, oh, how you can fit those two together. You know, we don't normally think about two categories being at war, but for some reason we have this image that these two ideas are at war. And what's interesting is that most historians are now coming to recognize is that the category of science and the category of religion are pretty new in history. Up until the 1800s, there really wasn't even a word science. It was called natural philosophy, and it paired pretty well with the rest of the areas of philosophy and theology. There wasn't a sort of rough distinction here. This was all seen as a very integrated, holistic system for understanding the world. Well, where did the idea of a separate scientific discipline come from? Well, to understand that, we have to know where a separate idea of religion came from. Believe it or not, the two categories were sort of defined against one another. And where it ultimately derives from is that religion was a word that was coming out of the Protestant Reformation and the European wars on religion, and really colonialism as well, the Western European nations encountering all these different other faith systems, such as Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., is they needed a word. They needed a word in order to define themselves against these other faith systems. So if you were, say, a Catholic, you needed something to define yourself against the Protestants, the Hindus, and the Buddhists. And eventually the word that became used was religio, religion, which meant something completely different prior to that. And this became a way of just creating a system of doctrines and statements to categorize your faith, what you believed about. Initially, it was about God. But then as we began to study the other things that we sort of put in the category of religion, we realized, well, there really isn't a good definition for every single religion. Some of these religions don't believe in God. So for instance, Buddhists, God doesn't play a huge part in that system, but we still think of it as a religion. And so now the field of religious studies is kind of in a crisis point where they go, is there really such a thing as religion? Or was this just an artificial category that was created during the 1600s and afterward by people who didn't know any better, who thought there was some sort of underlying common fact about all these different faith systems that united them all. 
but there really isn't anything that unites all these as one separate category called religion. But nevertheless, it's the category we live with. Something very similar happened with the sciences. Sciences began to need to define itself against these doctrines, these statements of faith. And it did so, the separate fields united under what was considered to be a universal empirical method, a universal science by which we can understand the world. Well, a big problem with that is, is that every single science has very different methods for understanding the world. The way psychology goes about is wholly different from geology, which is wholly different from theoretical physics. And so we kind of now live with this category called the natural sciences, and it's kind of difficult to find a sort of unifying feature that sets it up as its own category, save that distinguishes itself from what's called pseudoscience. And this has been called the demarcation problem. And so these categories are a mess right now. So to even say that there is a conflict between them, historians are beginning to realize, well, no, there isn't. This is a sort of artificial creation of categories that don't even make sense. But that doesn't explain where the idea came from. And really, the idea came from a couple of books, a couple from them from the side of this emerging field of science, and another from a group of occultists who wanted to, in a sense, posture themselves as the answer to a problem that they were helping to basically anachronistically create. Now, the books were from a guy called John William Draper and another one by Andrew Dixon White. Both wrote books where they basically populated history with supposed areas of conflict where Christianity had caused science to really be held back. Now, they're complete myths. Most of the facts within them have been completely debunked by historians. But simultaneous to this were these emerging new religious movements such as theosophy who also, if you read their opening pages of these books, also say there's been a big conflict between science and religion. We need a new religion, namely us, that brings both of them together. And so right around the late 1800s, you see a massive push to forward this narrative called the conflict thesis for different motives, some to promote this emerging field of natural science, which was just getting off the ground, and some to promote new religious movements. But ultimately, the same narrative was being pushed from different directions all towards the same place. And now, over 100 years later, we live with this narrative, even though historians have for decades now said, this is made up. So you're saying that science and religion haven't really necessarily been at war for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is just one particular narrative, one way of viewing the history that's actually quite questionable. And there are a lot of historians today that actually think science and religion have been working together quite nicely for most of history. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, not necessarily quite nicely. What most historians would now say is that the categories don't really make a lot of sense when we go back and try to apply these categories, which are more modern inventions throughout history, it doesn't fit, mostly because the categories today don't make a lot of sense. And so trying to even apply them is wrong. So like what we think of as science, that didn't exist even 100 years ago, especially 200, 300 years ago. And science and religion were actually overlapping in ways that they don't today, and so it's kind of anachronistic to try to evaluate them historically in terms of religion and science, because there weren't those lines. Yeah, the idea that's most common in the history departments today is called the complexity thesis, which is just a, a nice way of saying there is no one story. You can take facts and create a narrative of conflict if you want. You can take Galileo and Bruno 
and a few other instances and elevate these and say, this is what history is like. This is the true narrative and ignore facts where there was a lot more complementarity, helping each other out and just basically elevate these facts. Now that's completely arbitrary and you're basically just picking and choosing facts to make history say what you want to do. And so historians don't like doing that. And so also if I want to turn this around and say, oh, they've always been helpful and pick and choose facts to do that, that would be committing the same fallacy. But you can do that and it's just as easy. In fact, I, I would say it's easier. There's more instances of harmony than there is of actual genuine conflict. But if you want to create some sort of master narrative, a story that says, how has the relationship been? You're not going to be able to do that. All right. So you've brought up two things here. You've brought up the conflict thesis, which I assume means there's a conflict between science and religion. Yeah. That's the view I think a lot of people assume, even if we, we haven't really thought about why we assume that. And then you just brought up the complexity thesis, that this line between science and religion, it's more complex than that. They're not just in conflict. There's actually a lot of places where they're working together. So it's more complex than that. So we have the conflict thesis. We have complexity. What other C word are you about to throw out as the third or fourth option? Well, I'm about to call you a few cuss words, but none of them start with C. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so what, what other options? There's, there's the conflict thesis, there's complexity. What, what other options do we have uh, on the relationship between science and religion? There's the complementarity thesis. And, and that, that's more of a word that I'm coming up with, which is kind of that idea of where, no, they've actually always been friends. They've always been harmonious. They've complemented each other. Yeah, yeah, and the problem with that is exactly the same sort of thing that is with the conflict thesis, which is you're just picking and choosing facts whenever there's a multiplicity of facts to consider. And whatever one you choose to make central to history, the ones you put in your history book to weave together to tell the story, you're doing so arbitrarily, and you have to leave out facts that contradict that. If you actually include all the relevant facts, there's no one story. So what, what are these other facts? I mean, I know you don't want to just say they complement each other, but what are some of the complementary moments throughout history that help balance these conflicts and make things more complex? So one of the most obvious is the fact that Christianity really provided an intellectual milieu for science. And this has been called the Foster's Thesis. And it's basically the idea that the world is comprehensible, it's knowable, it's not divine, but it's good and we have the rational faculties in order to fully understand it. Then when I go out and look at the world and I'm doing investigations, that if I go back and do the exact same investigation tomorrow, I'll get the same results. And those results are true. They're not some sort of illusion like some religious and cultural beliefs would say. The reason that we believe that is because of Christianity. The West adopted Christianity and that provided the sort of climate for science to survive and thrive which is why the scientific revolution was primarily a Western European thing. So if you want to know why did Western Europe grow in science ahead of other cultures, a lot of historians will say it is because of Christianity providing that sort of milieu for science to thrive. And if you see, a lot of early scientists thought of their work as an act of worship. And this has been called the Merton Thesis. And the Merton Thesis is the idea that Early Protestants especially considered the scientific work, this hard work of investigating and knowing the world as a form of worship. Even Sir Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, justified scientific investigation on theological grounds, thought we were, he was reclaiming the knowledge of Adam, even if in a partial way, that Adam had all the scientific knowledge. It was lost at the fall, and now we are to reclaim it. Early science and early scientists nearly universally justified their enterprise on theological grounds. 
So thank heavens for Christianity because there would not be modern science without it. And then when you actually get into the actual history itself, you find many instances of this. So I can get into that, but it looks like you might have a question. Well, I, I'm thinking about the philosophical theological milieu. I, I guess is your point that perhaps in maybe a more Eastern context, say certain strands of Hinduism are going to have an approach to the physical world, to creation, where this is not a place you go for knowledge. We are meant to transcend the physical world, meant to transcend the bodily and the empirical and the world out there to look within or to access truths that are spiritual and above the physical world. Whereas in contrast, Christianity affirmed the goodness of creation. God made it and called it good. God descended down and incarnated into it with a physical body. The creation is a place where truth can exist, where divinity dwells, and we can know God through looking out at the world. Are you saying that this is a view of the physical, of the bodily, of the empirical that is affirming that truth and goodness can be found in the physical? And so that's a background that might not have been in a different context, which might reject the physical more so. Is that the type of thing you're getting at here? Yeah, there's two pitfalls you want to avoid. I don't want to characterize the entire East as saying they're a world denial. Yes, of course. That's that's not true. There's some of that, but that's also true of the West as well. There's two pitfalls you want to avoid. One is you don't want to divinize the world because if it becomes too sacred, it's no longer a place for investigation of knowledge. It becomes like the divine. It becomes beyond our rational faculties to understand. So you don't want to completely divinize the world. On the other hand, you don't want to make it completely evil. You don't want to make it, as some religions have, illusion or evil or not worthy of investigation. And that would be like in the West, forms of Gnosticism would have. In the East, you have Advaita Vedanta, which says the world is Maya, it is illusory. And so what knowledge can you get from an illusion, right? And so that cuts off scientific investigation as well. What you need is some mm. middle ground where creation is not divine and yet it's still good. And that's what a lot of historians think you get from the Genesis narrative and overall the Christian narrative, especially with the incarnation, where God himself was able to incarnate take on matter because it was good, and yet that matter did not become divine in that act. So the incarnation, believe it or not, the doctrine of the incarnation helped to motivate later science because it allowed Christians to see matter as good because God could unite with it, and yet not itself divine. Matter is, is good enough to investigate, but it's not so divine, not so holy, that you can't take a scalpel to it because you're violating it somehow. It's a good way Rather, to it. it's, 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 in, it's in the in-between. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, and you also said that scientists saw theological justification for their views. I've often heard it said that people looked for law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. Is that a sort of common type of thought here? That because we believe in a God who uses the divine mind to rationally structure reality, and to create reality in the image of the divine mind, so too can we go and use our minds to access reality. Because reality is a product of mind that was shaped by a rational mind, which would be God, and so we can access it using reason. We can access it and expect there to be laws, because nature could have just as easily been random and chaotic. The only reason we assumed it was the sort of thing a rational mind could understand is because we believed it was structured and formed and guided into being by the one who is reason itself, by the Logos. Is that, yeah. is that correct? One of the great ironies of history is the fact that we now think of laws of nature as somehow displacing God. 
if something mm. is explained via a law of nature, so for instance, with Stephen Hawking's book, if he can explain the universe via the laws of gravity and these other sorts of natural forces, he somehow is displaced God. Well, what's interesting is why do we call them laws of nature? Again, this goes back to this early modern scientific view that these laws were ultimately derived from a law giver. This idea, it's a theological term to say that they are laws of nature. That's a theological term. We've forgotten that over the ensuing centuries. But the very reason we believe in these laws that what happens today will continue to happen over time, over time, over time, is because we believe that this reliability is guaranteed by the lawgiver. So nature itself is inconsistent. We have no reason for assuming that, especially if we think that we're the intelligence, that we're the ones who bring consistency and form to the world through our, our mental activity. Well, you need some sort of mind behind the universe to also guarantee that, that's to ensure that our minds, when they go out yeah. and, and investigate the world, are actually corresponding with something that's really there. And exactly what you said, it was the divine logos, the lawgiver of the universe that justified that for these early scientists. If you read Kepler, if you read Newton, it's 100% in there. Newton thought gravity was divine activity. And the reason that we can be assured of gravity's consistency that we're not going to go spinning off away from the sun tomorrow is, was a theological statement that he believed in the goodness and re reliability of an unchanging God. Mm. And so science got off the ground based off that. Now we just take it on faith that gravity's not going to go away tomorrow or change tomorrow. But we don't have any philosophical justification for that. It's just, it's just an assumption. So I guess traditionally we would have thought, well, God formed the planets. And then science came along and said, well, actually, gravity helped bring together the matter that was needed for planetary formation. And the theologians are just standing in the background laughing, going, well, what explains the law of gravity? Because just saying gravity did it doesn't go back far enough. To explain things in terms of the law of nature, you still have to explain why we have those laws and why they're precisely tuned to bring about life in the way that they are. What I would say is, originally, it wasn't said that God made the planets and this was somehow reason for believing in God. This wasn't an apologetic that the planets were made by God. Normally, when you hear things like this, that that just shows that they don't understand the history of how people understood God and his creative activity. Yeah, they did think that God ultimately did, but it's just because they didn't have any other explanation. If you had shown them a natural explanation for that, it would not have harmed their faith at all. Because again, it's exactly what you're saying is because their ultimate justification for belief in God as the ultimate foundation was the reliability of natural law itself. So whether or not there were planets there to begin with, or whether or not it's explained by a natural law, you equally have to invoke the divine to explain it in this more pre-modern understanding of the world. So they're not looking at nature and thinking, oh, there's rational explanations for this. I guess we don't need God to explain it. Rather, they're looking at nature and thinking, wow, this makes sense. It's rational. Our minds can understand it. Why is that the case? Well, it must have been shaped and formed and birthed by a rational intelligence, and that's right. why it's rationally intelligible. So the fact that we can understand it scientifically is the reason that we believe there must be one who rationally structured it. Because yeah. they don't take intelligence as for granted. They don't take intelligibility as an assumption that the world must be intelligible. The fact that it is intelligible is saying something. It's something that's perhaps surprising and shocking. It, it would almost make more sense if it wasn't intelligible, if it was just chaos and randomness and you couldn't make sense of it. But it's precisely that you have a rational guider 
of the universe. Yeah, go ahead, Seth. One of the great ironies is that though we still believe in the intelligibility of the world, that when we go out and investigate it, we'll understand it and our understanding of it is real. And that these laws of nature, like so many of these theological concepts that grounded science are still with us today. And one of the great ironies is that now that we've sort of forgotten that and science has, in a sense, gone off on its own and become its own category, like I talked about earlier, outside of the theological foundation that formed it, is that has welcomed in a lot of dangerous philosophical problems. Scientific anti-realism has made a massive comeback especially after philosophers like Thomas Kuhn and his ideas about paradigm shifts. Does science actually tell us anything about the world or are we forever trapped inside our own minds and we create these paradigms and ways to understand the world, but they actually aren't telling us what the world is in itself. We're always trapped behind Mm. our sense perceptions, the way we see the world, the way we rationalize and fit things together. We're moving from things that are empirically adequate, these models that we create, that, that work. They predict things and the predictions are right. And we move from that to saying, well, that's actually how the world is. Well, if you actually read people like Paul Feyerabend and these philosophers of science, you begin to realize that there's not a lot of rational justification for making that move. And mm. in fact, the history of science seems to suggest we ought not make that move. One of the most well-tested scientific theories in history was Newtonian mechanics. And yet it was wrong. And yet, for the longest time, people thought that was a right description of reality. And then all of a sudden, general and special relativity comes along and displaces it. And we come to find out that even though it was empirically adequate, it gave us the right predictions. Newtonian mechanics were good enough that they used it and just used it to get us to the moon. And yet it was wrong. And so they had moved from this is empirically adequate to this is true, and they weren't right. This Mm. should cause us to doubt whether or not the model really tells us about the world in itself. So science is maybe great at making the cars run, but it can't necessarily tell you for sure the way the world actually is, merely how to function the way you want to within it. That would be a real simplified way of putting it, but yes. And so scientific anti-realism has made quite a bit of a comeback to the point that Stephen Hawk in his... Stephen Hawking's... Stephen Hawk. Stephen Hawk, yes. The great Stephen Hawk. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Hawking in his book the grand design comes out as a scientific anti-realist and basically says that our models are the simplest ones for us to understand, but I have no reason for assuming the Big Bang model is any more true than young Earth creationism. And that is a philosophical position because he recognizes that outside of that certain philosophical justification for what's called scientific realism, that when we investigate the world, we're actually getting at it and knowing it, there is no reason to assume it. That we need that philosophical justification. And once we bracketed off science from that theological foundation that gave it a reason for being realist, for saying we actually are coming to know the world, now we're living with the consequences of that. Let me make sure I understand this and try to make it as simple as possible for our audience, because this is a difficult discussion. It is. Basically, the human mind is rational, intelligent. I mean, most humans are, you know, uh, we have- Present company excluded. Yeah. Our mind is rational. It's intellectual. It has concepts, ideas, reason, logic, all of these types of things. And then we look at the world and we've been able to discern reason and intelligence in the world itself. And the question is, is reason and intelligence actually in the world 
or is that just the human mind projecting our rationality onto reality and seeing it there? I mean, this is a question in mathematics. Does the world actually work mathematically, or is it just us projecting our mathematical minds, you know, two plus two equals four onto reality, even though reality is way bigger and more infinite than that? And so a real question is, are we seeing a rational reality or just projecting the rationality of the human mind? And I guess you could say that in a theistic world where God exists, there is justification to believe that the reason of the human mind parallels the reason of the world because the world was itself formed by a divine mind that was rational and guided the creating of the universe. And so intelligence isn't just something that exists in the human mind that we project onto reality, for reality itself is the projection of an intelligent divine mind in whose image it was forged. One so like us that that deity was able to become human and think with a human mind. That's what's so unique about Christianity is the incarnation makes science so obvious. But once you get rid of that creator, there's no link between this and the world out there. It's, there's no link between my mind and reality. And you can doubt that link. You can say the, the world might be completely unintelligible, undesigned, un irrational, because no one made it. It just popped into being chaotically out of nothing. And so why should there be a necessary link between me and the world such that I can know it? Is that is that what we're getting at? Or did I just make it even more complicated? Most of the, I mean, I, it, it's complicated one way or the other. But most of, I'll go out on a limb here. I will say that most of the modern problems in the philosophy of science stem from the fact that science was founded on a theological foundation and has since dropped it. Okay, and is that is that a very controversial thing for you to say? Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> it absolutely is, but I think it's highly defensible. I think it is very defensible. Today, some of the biggest topics in the philosophy of science is, what is a law of nature? How do we know when something becomes a law of nature? Problem of empiricism. How are we guaranteed that what we know today will be true tomorrow? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My own topic of biological teleology that you mentioned earlier, that's a problem in the philosophy of science that ultimately stemmed from the fact that biology was founded as a theological exercise. We've done a very good philosophical background type of the thing. Let's, let's get some more specific questions. Yeah. I've often heard it assumed that as society becomes more scientific and educated, religion will naturally recede and be sort of faded out. What is that? Is that accurate? Is that, is that really the case that as science grows, religion will shrink? No, not at all. So this was the secularization thesis that was popular 50 or so years ago and has since pretty much been declared dead on arrival. There's a very similar idea called the myth of disenchantment, which comes out of the fact that we thought that the more we investigated the natural world and came to understand it naturally, that there would be no room for supernatural causation. Well, the problem is, is that virtually always throughout history is that belief in the supernatural was never based upon incomplete ideas about the natural. You'll still hear this from high-ranking scientists and even people in the relevant fields like history, but it's simply not true. Belief in the quote-unquote supernatural was not a way to fill the gaps in our knowledge. It was always predicated. It was always built on something different than that. We can get into that. But long story short, now what we're seeing is, is that as science advances, and yes, in the West, there has been a decline 
in religious affiliation. But what there hasn't been a decline in is belief in supernatural or paranormal phenomena. And that's quite shocking. And what makes that all the more shocking is the fact that it does not seem to depend upon level of education. People who are highly educated are just as likely to believe in the supernatural or paranormal as the uneducated. Scientific education doesn't seem to have any effect upon whether or not someone believes in God, someone believes in ghosts, angels, demons, etc., etc. And I think one of the most interesting facts about this is, is that the belief in God among scientists seems to have remained unchanged over the past 100 years. Now, our scientific knowledge has grown massively in the past 100 years, but belief in God seems to be stagnant. Now, what I can say to that is, wherever religion goes down, belief in other supernatural things seems to take its place, such as telepathy, clairvoyance, these other very sort of weird phenomena. They seem to be filling some sort of fundamental void in the human mind that if you don't believe in God, ghosts and demons will take its place. So people in the West might not believe in the virgin birth anymore, but they believe in astrology. They're checking their horoscopes. They, they're playing around with reincarnation. Yes. They're considering other spiritual things. So the spiritual valve isn't dying because of science. We're just pivoting to different types of spiritualities. Yeah. That's really interesting. On a more fundamental level, is there a different basis for knowledge between religion and science that ultimately makes them incompatible? Stereotypically, we think of science as based on evidence and facts, and religion is based on blind faith. Is that characterization correct? So this is controversial on how exactly these relate. I would ultimately say no. I think both ultimately begin with an act of faith, an axiom. And the axioms are these sort of premises, these ideas, these assertions that just ground the entire field. You don't need to justify them. They're there, and they're the sort of foundation from which the entire field is built. And we've talked about some of the axioms of science already, that there are laws of nature, that nature is predictable, that it's understandable. You can keep building these out. This initial act of faith in the human capacity to understand the world through empirical investigation by going out and looking at it, we come to know the world. That's how science ultimately begins. And then now we talk about Christianity. There is an act of faith as well. And then once you begin with that, then you can begin to use reason rationality in the empirical investigation, looking at the evidence in order to build up from there. And so I ultimately think they're far more similar than they are distinct. There are very noticeable distinctions between them, but really the form of knowledge that justifies both really does both begin on an act of faith. And I'm not committing myself to those who know to a presuppositional apologetic here, which I sometimes get mistaken for saying. What I am saying is, is that if you're going to fault theology for its act of faith, well, then you also have to fault science for the exact same thing. And so yeah. I don't ultimately see these as reason versus faith, as it's sometimes posed. I see them both involved in reason and both involved in faith. And that's ultimately my point. And I'm saying all of this, and we haven't even brought up the topic of apologetics, which I think on its own can maybe provide a rational justification for the faith. All I'm saying is that if you take Christianity on its own and believe it by an act of faith, 
you're on no worse grounds than that initial act of faith that justifies the act of science as a search for truth. For sure. What's interesting is I've brought some of these objections up to people who are atheists before, and I'll say you're just assuming the world is rational, that your mind is rational, that you have access to the world, that the world's consistent over time. And they'll say, yeah, but those are, I mean, those are things that everyone has to buy into. So like, of course, we just assume those. But I guess the point is that 500 years ago, that common sense set of assumptions would have included, well, of course, God exists. What are you talking about? And so those are very culturally specific. And so like, why not include God in those sets of assumptions? And why include the foundations for science in those assumptions? That's not based on evidence at all. There's no evidence that could support it one way or another. That's your cultural presuppositions coming in, is what you allow to be an assumed thing and what you say isn't allowed to be an assumed thing. That's very culturally specific. And 500 years ago, it would have been totally different and it would have included God. 500 years from now, we might reject the entire basis for what we thought of as science today. It is funny that the pe- that people do want to import these things that are common sense. So for instance, the rationality of the universe, our capacity to know it, the inte- its intelligibility, the laws of nature, these sorts of things. And they do the same thing in ethics departments, right? When we talk about human rights, for instance, when we talk about human rights, human rights is a idea that does not seem to predate Hugo Grotius in the 1600s. Yeah. And he grounded it upon Christian assumptions. And yet today we're like, well, that's just a starting assumption that humans have rights for ethics. We just take that for granted that humans that's have rights. That's common sense. No. Yeah, it's common sense. <laughs> no, it isn't. It started in the 1600s. It's yeah. not common sense. It's only been common sense for a few hundred years. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so the things that we just somehow take for granted, people who don't know the history, historically illiterate, will just assume, oh, well, we all take this for granted. Very much not realizing how Christian their being in their very assumptions. Well, thank you so much, Seth, for coming on here and negating human rights. Obviously. That's the takeaway. Well, let me let me ask you, are there scientific arguments for God? I've hinted at that. Yeah, could, could you maybe go through? I mean, obviously, I, I'm setting you up here. This is an alley-oop. But <laughs> what are some scientific evidences, arguments that people have tried to use for God? Have people tried to say science actually supports religion? What are some of those arguments? Yeah, I won't go through and defend these like super deeply. There's a lot of great scientists and philosophers who have done that. And I I really think this should just, you know, if you like this, go investigate this further. There's a lot. The first and probably the most common one that you'll hear is what's called the Kalam cosmological argument made famous by William Lane Craig. And it's more commonly known as the first cause argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Basically, the general idea is that with Big Bang cosmology, especially, we now have a scientific case that the universe had to have a beginning point. There were always philosophical arguments for this, why there couldn't be an infinite amount of time in the past. Some of them very interesting. But now we have at least somewhat of a scientific case to go along with that. And for a culture that highly values the knowledge coming out of science, it makes it all the more valuable as an apologetic is that now one of the premises of this argument that the universe began to exist has some pretty solid ground to stand on beyond just pure philosophy. There's an in the beginning, empirically shown. Yeah, Yeah. we could show that 13.7 or 13.8 billion years ago, yeah, we have a beginning point. That's the maximum possible age of the universe according to the standard model Big Bang cosmology. 
I think that, that that Big Bang cosmology stands as something that makes the existence of God more likely than it would be otherwise, which is just the definition of what it means to be evidence. So you're not saying, well, the universe began to exist, therefore God had to have been the one who began it. But you are saying the fact that it began to exist points to something that caused it. And maybe that's not God, but maybe it is. And it makes that scientific evidence makes the religious worldview much more plausible than it otherwise would have been. Yeah. When you're taking two competing explanations, so let's just say atheism and theism, right? God exists, God does not exist. Now, and you look at what would you expect on each? Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a theist, you probably, you might expect that the world was created by God. So you might expect some sort of scientific verification of that. If you're an atheist, that might be a bit surprising. You could probably fit it in with a little bit of work, but it's a little bit surprising. And so the fact that the evidence now points to a beginning point to the universe counts as evidence for theism because it's not surprising. It's something that comes out naturally from the predictions of a theistic universe. Okay. Are there other scientific arguments that you think strongly point towards or hint towards a religious belief? Yeah, I think one of the strongest ones in terms of convincing scientists, convincing atheists has been what's called the fine-tuning argument. And it's this idea that the initial constants and quantities that were present at the Big Bang seemed like they were perfectly fit for life to eventually arise. Someone has monkeyed with the equations of physics, to quote Fred Hoyle, so that we will eventually show up. We human beings, intelligent agents, would eventually show up. And just to give you some idea, so let's take the strong nuclear force. It's one of the four fundamental forces. And you can mess with the variable, how strong it is. Make it stronger, make it less strong. Well, the strong nuclear force, the variable now is at 0.007. And this is a force that's very important because it controls the sun, the power of the sun. What happens if you adjust that? Scientists, they plug it into a model and they say, what happens if the variable was actually 0.006 or 0.008? Well, what they figured out is, is that if it was different by that little of amount, there could be no life anywhere in the entire universe. And the same is true for virtually every single thing about the universe. Every single parameter seems to be designed so that life would eventually come about. Now, this makes sense if you believe the universe was created to eventually form life, that some designer set all these parameters so that life would eventually come about. It's a little bit more difficult to reconcile if you don't believe that. I have a few statistics. It's a, a little bit hard to imagine. <laughs> Here are some of the statistics for just how fine-tuned the universe is for the eventual emergence of life. If the ratio of electrons to protons was different by one part in 10 to the 37th power, that's 10 followed by 37 zeros, there could be no life. Now, what about the ratio of the electromagnetic force to gravity? One part in 10 to the 40th power, so far less likely. What about the expansion rate of the universe? Well, if it was different by one part in 10 to the 55th power, there could be no life. What about the mass density of the universe? One part in 10 to the 59th power. What about the cosmological constant? One part in 10 to the 120th power. What about the initial low entropy of the universe? This is the most mind-boggling of all. One part in 10 to the 10 
to the 123rd power. Now, if that number doesn't make sense, that's a number with so many zeros on it, there are not enough atoms in the universe to write that number out. Just the zeros for that number. It's mm. mind-bogglingly fine-tuned so that we would be here talking about it. I have one illustration. John, I'm going to bully you for a second. What else is new, Seth? That's a good point. It's not a podcast unless I'm doing something to bully you. Let's take just one of these numbers, the lowest one, that one part in 10 to the 37th power, the ratio of electrons to protons. So John, let's get a mental illustration of how fine-tuned that is. So let's say I covered the entire North American continent in dimes all the way up to the moon. That's 240,000 miles. Well, geez, Seth, that's really high. Nearly be enough to cover the U.S. national debt. But I'm done. Next, I take a pile of dimes from here to the moon on a billion other continents the same size as North America. So I do that and I do it a billion times. The entire North American continent covered by dimes 240,000 miles deep. Now, I go back and I paint one dime red. There's one red dime. And I pull out a gun and I say, from these billion continent-sized dime piles, you have to pick the red one. Otherwise, I'll shoot you and you die, <laughs> which normally happens when you shoot someone. Now, John, if you as picked one does. it, as one does, yes. If you picked that dime on the first try, what would you think? Oh, my gosh. This is a lot of money. <laughs> uh, but, no, uh, but I... That, no, that would, you know, all of the money around me. I mean, obviously that would be stupendous. Uh, I, it would be so, the odds would be so small that I would think it couldn't have just been random chance, but someone must have set it up that way so that I would pick that one dime and that I'd be right next to it and see it. Right. The odds that you would pick that dime, that one red dime from all those dimes is one in 10 to the 37th power. The odds of you picking that red dime are the same odds that our universe would have the right ratio of electrons to protons. And that's just one of the factors. That's just one. And that is the, that is the one with the, num the lowest number. Yeah. Because remember, 37th power, then the next one was 40, the next one 55. It just gets worse from there. It just gets worse and worse from then on out. So I've heard these statistics and I've even heard atheists agree. Yes, the universe seems fine-tuned. These factors are so insane. I, I've heard this isn't that controversial to say this. Even atheists say this, but they interpret that fine tuning differently. What what is the move they make to accommodate that fine tuning and not go to God? So, in order to deal with this, quite often the most common strategy would be to posit a multiverse. Okay. And by that I mean, what if there's an infinite number of universes out there, a la the Marvel series? And we just happen to live in the one with all the right parameters because it doesn't matter how unlikely it is. If you have an infinite amount of tries, you're eventually going to get that red dime. I yeah. said, okay, I'll shoot you, but you have an infinite number of tries. You're probably not going to be sweating bullets anymore because you'll eventually get it. Yeah. And so that's the strategy that people who want to avoid theism often will invoke. Would you say that one of the major reasons for the popularity of the multiverse is that it provides an alternative to a religious explanation of fine-tuning? I do. I do think that science, it still fills that division that I talked about between science and religion that still is a very much a driving force within it. So 
any explanation other than a theistic one will probably be preferable for a practicing physicist who does not want the science to overlap with religion in any category, in any possible way. So let's get to to biology. We've been talking cosmology and physics. Let's get to biology. Did Charles Darwin destroy the need for an intelligent designer? You know, we didn't need God to design all the species anymore because evolution will eventually do that through time, random chance, and survival of the fittest. You hear this so often, and it seems to be, I call this the unholy alliance, it seems to be the agreement between creationists and evolutionists. They can't agree on anything else, but what they can agree on is that evolution destroys the intelligent design argument. And what's really funny is that from the very beginning of Darwin first positing his theory of natural selection, that wasn't the going assumption. The going assumption was Darwin's theory of natural selection actually made fine-tuning and the need for an intelligent designer more likely than it would be based on other competing theories of evolution, like Lamarckianism. And so you have people like Asa Gray, who introduced Darwin's theory to the United States. He was one of Darwin's biggest proponents. He was an evangelical Christian, and he stated that his goal was to, quote, baptize the theory of natural selection so that it would be its salvation. And so you also have plenty of other early Christians like B.B. Warfield, who saw in Darwinism a need for fine-tuning in order to make all the mechanisms work just right and ultimately arrive at creatures like us. And while some people today might hear that and go, well, that sounds like an anachronistic idea. We don't need that anymore. Interestingly enough, the argument has seen a resurrection in the past few years. With the work of people like Andreas Wagner, and I won't have time to get into the specifics, but I can reference a book, the idea that evolution and intelligent design are at odds seems to be going away. And there's a good book by Rope Koyonen called The Compatibility of Evolution and Design. It's a newer book. It's only a few years old. That basically takes the argument for intelligent design, the basic outline of the argument, and points it at evolution and says, there's an argument to be made there. Evolution itself looks like it was fine-tuned in order for it to work. The very mechanisms that allow it to work are fine-tuned so that it would eventually create the sort of biodiversity that we see today. Now, that sort of reconciliation would have been unthinkable 50 years ago when the battle lines were drawn between creationists and intelligent design theorists and evolutionists. But today, that sort of reconciliation comes from the best science that we have. So I guess the creationist concern would be that if natural selection can explain the evolution of the species, we don't need God to explain it. And so God seems distanced from creation. But I guess you're saying that actually evolution seems to be a process that requires a lot of things to be specifically fine-tuned already in order for the process to happen. So it's not that God is removed from the process, but that he is embedded in all of the unfolding of the evolutionary tree itself, almost as if there's a divine root of the evolutionary tree as it springs up and out. Maybe God's not snapping his fingers at every step of the process and saying, ooh, spider monkey's next. But instead, he's at the heart and foundation of the process itself that then yields those things. Because in the same way that God designed perhaps the law of gravity, and then gravity does a bunch of things, rather than God directly doing them, like the formation of planets, so too you could say that God designed much of what is at the heart of the process of evolution, and then the process continues without him needing to tinker with it every 10 seconds. It seems like when it comes to 
creating functioning proteins that you need for life to be able to diversify and grow and evolve, that it somehow has been jerry-rigged so that it would ultimately work. And it didn't need to be this way, that the fitness landscapes, the evolutionary landscapes, actually lead to paths where speciation and growth and complexity and these sorts of things become a possibility for life. It didn't have to happen that way, and yet it's there. And the sort of fine-tuning that you need for that to ultimately happen is very similar to the fine-tuning of the cosmic parameters that I just talked about. And so you have a parallel argument here in evolution that you do to the fine-tuning of the universe. I, I know that it's going to be hard to do this without getting into the biological minutia, but isn't part of the brilliance of Darwin that it's random and chaos and it, like if you just give it time, eventually it will build this. And what's driving it isn't intelligence, it's survival of the fittest, which is just like, does it need to be a divine hand doing it? Isn't the whole point of Darwin's brilliance that this will just sort of randomly happen given time? The idea that it randomly can happen, it has, you have to have those pathways carved out first. Darwin did not know about microbiology at all in his time. And the, what we've been able to learn, especially over the past 20 years, at the genetic, at the cellular level, has just blown up. And these pathways do exist, and the natural selection does work, but only because it's fine-tuned. So a, a good illustration would be to say, whereas Paley had a watchmaker argument, where if you stumble upon a watch in a forest, you would think this needs a designer. Darwin discovered a watchmaking factory. And so he initially said, no, you don't need a watchmaker anymore. This factory will blindly mechanically create watches mm. on its own. But since then, people have looked at the machines that are building the watches and re realized that these machines themselves are fine-tuned, bear the same sort of design that we would expect to see from something derived from a designer. Yeah, that is a really good example. You've shown that philosophically there might be more compatibility between a designer and evolution. And you also hinted that historically speaking, that Christians didn't immediately just reject Darwin, that there was actually more, there, a lot of Christians thought that Darwin might actually be used for religion. Is creationism as we think of it I think a lot of Christians assume Darwin showed up and younger creationists got really mad. And that's been the story ever since. And then some random Christians have not done that, but they were outliers. Can you nuance the history for us a bit? Yeah. So that's just not true at all. Whenever Darwinism first showed up, evangelicals especially, but also plenty of conservative Catholics, saw Darwin as an ally. I gave the illustration of Asa Gray, but also B.B. Warfield. And the numbers, I've written a, a, an entire thing on this on Capturing Christianity's website. If you just type in my name, Seth Hart, and go to Capturing Christianity, you'll see plenty of articles where I show that Christians were among the most eager to accept Darwin's theory of natural selection because they saw the theological utility of it. And a guy named David Livingston, not that one, a historian named David Livingston has written a book called Darwin's Forgotten Defenders where he also promotes this thesis where Christians just seemed to have been okay with Darwin's idea just as much as the fellow scientists of the time. Now, it becomes difficult to parse because most scientists at the time were Christians, but it seems like most of the opposition to Darwin's theory during the second half of the 19th century was scientific. It mm. wasn't theological. Most of the problems with Darwin's theory 
came from the fact that there just wasn't good evidence to show how it worked yet. It would take until what's called the modern synthesis of the 1920s, 1930s, before Darwinism actually had a very coherent idea of how it operated. So Darwin didn't live to see his idea accepted. So if Christians weren't in the 19th century just rejecting Darwin, how do we get from there to now? At what point did this shift? So it began somewhat with the publication of The Fundamentals, which was a publication that was meant to bring Christianity back to the core of the truths of the faith. Now, mostly this was written to combat liberal theology, the stuff coming out of Germany at the time. So the fundamentals was written to sort of preserve against theological heresy, not scientific heresy, so to speak. But the fundamentals became the origin of the fundamentalist movement, where it got its name. And so post-World War I, even though the fundamentals didn't really have a lot against evolution, There were a couple articles in it, and slowly but surely, evolution began to be seen as an opponent to Christianity. And part of that, a good part of that, is not to blame on Christians. A good part of that is to blame on the scientists, who began to use Darwinism for social and political purposes. Social Darwinism formed. It became the justifications both for some atrocities in World War I and World War II. And Christians were quite rightly appalled at this. And this isn't just me rewriting history. Michael Roos, an atheist philosopher, has written extensively on this, on how scientists, biologists, and atheist philosophers of the day abused Darwin's theory, and Christians were quite right to get angry about that, and then began to see Darwinism as an opponent to Christianity because of the ways it was being used to sacrifice unwanted people. It became a justification for early eugenics movements. So it's, Christians are objecting to it in the early 20th century, but for ethical reasons, not right. scriptural reasons. Right. And that was, if you get in, even into the Scopes trial, the famous Scopes trial, a lot of the opposition that motivated the Tennessee law was because of the moral concerns, especially coming out of World War I and the way Darwin's theory was being used for some racist, horrific, anti-human purposes. And so scientific racism really found its major justification early on in Darwin's theory. But that was a strong motivation for it. But then now, once the battle line was drawn, it was drawn. And by the time you get into the 1950s and the centennial of the publication of The Origin of Species, 1959, you began to see Darwinism being seen more as an opponent to Christianity rather than as a sort of neutral thing that be used or disregarded by Christians. That's interesting. So what you're saying that really it wasn't until almost 1960 that this was really a solid, you know, Christians versus evolution type of thing, because that's that's quite recent. What you're saying is the creationist evolutionist controversy is younger than the I Love Lucy show. I mean, my parents were born in the 1940s, so they are older than this conflict between evolution and creationism as we think of it today. This is not the eternal struggle. This is something very culturally specific that really began quite recently. Up until even into the 40s, you had some teleological ideas of evolution, where evolution was seen as goal-oriented. Things that were quite friendly to theism were not necessarily rejected from science. They weren't necessarily welcome, but they were part of the milieu. You could interpret Darwinism as a teleological process, a process that's goal-oriented, that's being even utilized by divine beings. So Henri Bergson's Creative Evolution was one of the most important philosophical works ever, published around 1900. Pierre Tejaud de Chaudin was a very famous paleontologist who had a teleological idea of evolution. He was promoting his ideas in the 30s and 40s. 
he was disbarred and his publications weren't out until the 50s. And by that point, it was too late. But he was good friends with George Gaylord Simpson and Julian Huxley. These fellow scientists were completely comfortable. They didn't agree with him, but they were completely comfortable sitting next to Christians using Darwinism to promote the idea that there is a purpose or goal to the process ordered by a divine being. And it wasn't until the 1950s that this opposition, this, the battle lines were really drawn. And then, of course, 1961, what happened? The publication of Henry Morris and John Whitcomb published The Genesis Flood. 1961 was the beginning of the scientific opposition to evolution, the real staunch scientific opposition. Before that, it had been primarily a moral objection that had motivated Christians to object to evolutionary theory. Now it switched to a scientific and hermeneutical one, which was we need to preserve the truth of the Christian faith as told in Genesis 1 and 2, and we have, we have to form a, an alternative scientific paradigm by which we can understand the evidence given to us by modern science. That's recent. That hasn't been the narrative all along. That's a recent thing, and that could have been different. That's what you're saying. Yes, and at that point, because there was an agreement between the sides that evolution was an opponent to traditional Christian faith, it swept over any competing ideas that came before. So now it just seems weird and odd to think about that for the first 80 or so years of Darwin's theory, the two ideas were not seen to be in conflict. Not necessarily, at least. There was some bubbling here and there, but there was just as much utilization of Darwin's theory of natural selection as there was rejection of it by the Christian community. I think the real takeaway from this has been Realizing that what we take as common sense and as the, the way the world just always has been and has to be isn't necessarily the case. That Christianity and evolution didn't need to always be enemies and certainly weren't always enemies until quite recently. That the scientific worldview isn't just common sense, but actually assumes a number of metaphysical starting points that people haven't always assumed and for most of history have been outright rejected. And so I, I think it's really interesting to question what we take as common sense and to question what we just assume. And that actually ends up showing how much more common ground there is in these conversations once you get past your presuppositions. Sure. <laughs> Can science explain morality? Not on its own. Not on its own. And so you get people like Sam Harris who claim that they have found a scientific basis for morality. But it always smuggles in some sort of philosophy along the way. So what Sam Harris does is he defines the good as the highest pleasure for the most number of people. Basically, it's just a standard utilitarian ethic. And then he basically says, well, science can tell us what causes that. Well, the problem is, is who says that's what's good? Just because this is the case that the most number of people are having the best time why ought I be obligated to make that a thing, especially if it comes at my own expense? It might be the case, especially in John's case, if I just disappeared, that John would be a much happier person. But why ought I be obligated in that case to do that? There's, you're moving from a descriptive statement about this is a fact to a proscriptive statement, which is this ought to be the case. You are now obligated to do this. And that's a jump in logic. And this is something that Moore, that Hume, that quite a few philosophers have noted and said, you can't do this, at least not on its own. You need some sort of justification to move from an is statement. It is a fact about something 
to an ought statement. Therefore, we ought to do something. And that takes philosophy. So science can describe the world, but it can't prescribe how it ought to be. It says what it is, not what it ought to be. Well, for the record, Seth, if you chose to just leave and disappear, I would be deeply saddened because I would like the chance to kill you myself. Let us come around you and cut you down as a community. Let, let, us, let us in, Seth. Did you just orchestrate this entire question to tell me you want to murder me? Thanks again for listening to the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a five-star review. We're an up-and-coming podcast and every little bit helps. Also consider subscribing to our Patreon. Patreon users get a host of additional content, such as additional behind-the-scenes interviews that we did with our guests, complete unaired episodes, lectures from Jonathan and I's classes, and at higher tiers, you get additional perks such as being able to interview John and I yourself or coming on the podcast to ask one of our guests a question. All this and much more at spirituallyincorrectpodcast.com. Check it out now and see what you've been missing out on. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch, whose song Starry Night provides the intro and outro for this podcast. You can hear more of his music on YouTube or Spotify.